Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. Today's episode features a recording taken from a conversation between Alexis Wright and Ivor Indyk to celebrate the publication of Wright's new novel, Praiseworthy. Alexis Wright is a remarkable writer, originally hailing from the Wanya Nation in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Her novel, Carpentaria, won the 2007 Miles Franklin Award, and Wright was awarded the 2018 Stella Prize for her biography of Tracker Tilmouth. Praiseworthy is Wright's fourth novel, following 2014's The Swan Book. These three books were published by Giramondo Press, and joining Wright to discuss her work and Praiseworthy was Ivor Indyk, founding editor and publisher at Giramondo, and Whitlam Professor in the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western City University. Here's the recording of their conversation. It's really great to be talking to you in front of 200 people. Um, that's not something we do very often. I think the first thing that struck me about Praiseworthy when I got it in manuscript, mm. uh, but it's not just the extent of it, which was large, but the power of the language and the scale of the imagination was the scale of the book. It seemed extraordinary, still seems extraordinary to me now, the sheer scale of the book in all its aspects. And I wondered whether you'd set out from the beginning to write a large book or whether it had actually developed in the course of the writing. Um, thank you, Iva. I'd like to also acknowledge the Orangery people of Kulin Nation, on whose lands we're on tonight, and um, elders past and present on their unceded lands. Thank you very much. Iva. <laughs> oh, no, I, I didn't set out to do a big book at all. I just set, set out to do the next book, that's all. <laughs> I remember at the time it was, uh, I, I started working on this book, not writing notes and so on, at the same time that I started working on Tracker. It was a big project and also taking some risks there on how I would do this book. I didn't talk to anybody about it really, how I would actually do it. But I, I thought at the time when I was starting that I needed to continue with my own writing because uh, I just needed to keep on working on my own fictional work and uh, with a new, new work after uh, the Swan book. That's where it started and uh, I think at the time it was uh, looking at butterflies and a but big butterfly collection in the museum in Darwin. It grew from there. From the butterflies. <laughs> yeah, from the butterflies. <laughs> that, that's before you came to the donkeys. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I, I'm not too sure how we came to donkeys, but <laughs> we can talk about that. I guess one of the reasons for the scale of the book is um, uh, the range of animals, of creatures that are featured in the book, mm. and not just as individuals, but collectively in great, great, huge sort of parades of uh, energy and force as they move en masse, butterflies particularly, but the donkeys as well, and uh, the donkeys are the uh, object of uh, 
the main one of the main characters' um, obsessions. So there's a lot about donkeys uh, in the book, but it's just one among many many mm. animals. Mm. I, I still think it, uh, it's extraordinary that you came up with a book of this scale, given all the other demands upon you, uh, not the least of which was the Bois Bouvier chair. Mm. And it's during that period that you wrote some of the most important essays uh, you've written on uh, Aboriginal sovereignty, on uh, land rights mm. and climate change, of course, mm, as well. Mm, mm. So I don't know where you found the time to do it, but you say it was a kind of imperative of your imagination. I think so. It wasn't I set out to do a, a big book. I think in the writing and, and the thinking that I was putting into what to do, the scale of what's happening in the world in an indigenous world, to the world at large, you know, with, with uh, climate change. And the things that are happening is, is such, on huge scale, unprecedented, you know, <laughs> flooding and fires and worldwide events. And uh, so the book kind of grew out of that. And I was talking about the idea of what's, you know, I felt the kind of literature that was needed in the future. And uh, not that I'm saying that I'm producing it, but I think, you know, that we do need literature on large scale and uh, to, to talk about some of the issues, the big issues that it, we're, we're confronted with in the era, you know, of global warming. So the, the book somehow grew more than, more, more mighty <laughs> than, than I ever planned to, 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 to write. And, uh, and I was even surprised when you told me how many pages this book was, <laughs> and I can't even believe it. You know, I can't even believe that it's 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 here now and, and on that scale. It makes a lot of sense to me that your argument that when things are happening on a huge scale, mm. it requires an aesthetic, literary response, mm. which is itself huge. That's I right. think that's what you're arguing. That's right. Yeah. I just kept working on it, and and it was difficult. It was difficult to, to to work on it by just grabbing moments in the last ten years. Because I was working on you know the whole time as I was working on Tracker, and as you know that was a huge project. And then since I finished Tracker, then came the Babovia position, and that was four and a half years, and that was yeah full on. I really wanted to make that position work because we don't have that many chairs in Australian literature in the, in the country. And I wanted to make this work a position for a practising writer. And I got, ended up getting requests from all over the world, all over the country, you know, to, to give lectures or keynote lectures or uh, write books, uh, write essays and talk to students all over the world in India, China and all over the country. I remember because you used to catalogue them and, <laughs> and send them to me. Uh, look, I mean, your dedication in that position was absolutely extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's another uh, sense in which the, the novel is capacious, it's sort of reaching right out, uh, and that is in relation to what you call uh, in the book the old times, mm. which is the indigenous perception of time. And it seemed to me, especially the temporal perspectives 
They're the ones that are really huge because they're going back not just to um, the elders or the ancestors, but the ancestral spirits, the powers of the country, which are really beyond time in a way. Yeah. Um, now when, I, when I first started to, to think about writing, uh, it was a long time ago now, and I couldn't really find what I, and how I wanted to write, in, and I couldn't find it in this country at the time. And I looked for writers all over the world and see what they were doing. And I talk about this quite a lot. I looked at writers who had a, a long unbroken tradition in their own homeland to try and understand how they wrote. You know, there were writers from, you know, Asia and um, India and uh, Europe, European countries. You know, I was a big fan of Seamus Heaney's work in Ireland, the Irish writers. South American writers, uh, people like Carlos Fientes, who said all times in Mexico were important and no time has ever been resolved. And uh, as soon as I'd seen that, and I said that that's exactly what the situation is here. And I didn't want anyone to put me in a box, you know, that I was going to just write about a certain period of time and uh, I'm not going to look at, you know, whatever I wanted to look at when I was writing. And I wanted to write the all times, sovereignty of the mind and sovereignty of the imagination, and that all times, all times are important in this country. No time has been resolved. And that's exactly what I've learned. You know, I've learned from, from my elders, from people I've worked with in, you know, throughout Northern Australia. All these stories and new Aboriginal law is as important today as it was, you know, thousands of years ago. And so I wanted to, to express all this and worked at it and so that it comes quite naturally. I don't do it lightly. And of course, there's lots of things I don't know and I'll never know, but um, I try to do my best. I mean, one of the extraordinary things is the way that kind of awareness of being the heir of generations is present not just in the humans, in fact, it's often absent in the humans because they're fighting each other all the time, but it's present in the animals and in the smallest creatures like the golden beetle, for example. There's a kind of knowledge which is um, instinctive in the landscape and in its creatures. Mm. I mean, that, that's obviously a conscious um, depiction on your part, that sense of, sense of sentience. Yeah, it is. And but the writing also comes naturally and the thought patterns, you know, yeah. that, that come with it. So when I'm writing, it just, it flows and uh, comes into, into, into the writing where the Beatles, you know, have, um, have law, <laughs> yeah. legacy and, and rights to be here. They're as important as we are. I wanted to pick up because you referred there to it's in the language the way you mm. write, in the rhythm of the writing. Mm. And that's certainly the case when you're focused on a particular creature. Uh, for example, uh, the beetle and the way it's digging <laughs> in mm. the soil. Uh, but can we talk about the rhythm of your writing? Because I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of your work. Mm. Are you conscious of writing to a rhythm? I am. I love music. I work, yes. I work with music. But the type of music has a beat, you know, and has a regular beat like a heartbeat. For me, say, classical Indian ragas, I listen to things like that, or I'm writing, you know, particular composers. It's a very s slow rhythm. And I think it just 
But there's country and western as well. Oh, there's country and western, of course. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I grew Verdi. up with country and western. And, <laughs> and, there's, uh, <laughs> and there's Verdi and mm. there's opera. Mm. Uh, mm. Madame Butterfly, most mm. obviously, I think, in this, uh, mm -hmm. because of the prevalence of yeah. butterflies. And also the butterfly lovers. It's a varied beat. Uh, I mean, it's a varied rhythm. It can be meditative. Oh, other times it'll be, you know, quite outrageous. <laughs> and, uh, but somehow or other that's a rhythm that you need when you're writing. You spend a lot of time by yourself when you write. Only so much of your own company that you can put up with. <laughs> but you reminded me it's a heartbeat, right? Mm. It's not just mm. a musical beat, it's a heartbeat. Well, it's like a heartbeat, but it's also the rhythm that you hear when you hear that type of music. But yeah. also there's something going on in my own mind that's it's building, it's building it, you know, stronger. What I'm trying to do is build things stronger and stronger. Rhythm. Yeah. But don't you see it as the pulse of the country in some aspects? Yes, yeah. Well, there's times when you might see it as, as the pulse of the country. You know, we say up in the Gulf, you know, we're of one heartbeat. That's a pulse. We do things as one. Everything is a, as one, not just us. The land and everything on the land, it's all for one heartbeat. Mm. I mean, there is an extraordinary part in the novel when uh, Tommy Hawk, the reprobate son of Planet and Das, the, the mother and father figures in the, in the novel, he's sort of exiled to the desert mm. and he's uh, taken up by a, a donkey herdsman mm -hmm. reluctantly. He starts beating on a, on a big 10-gallon drum Yes. Is that right? Uh, mm. In order to express his frustration at being... Uh, dumped there. <laughs> dumped there by his father, yeah. <laughs> and that beat, you know, it starts on the drum, but soon mm. it's just a kind of beating through the earth. Yes. And then it's picked up thousands of miles away mm. and it just goes on and on. It's yeah, his mother hears it. Beat, you know, yes. Yeah, his mother hears it. She can hear the, she can hear the beat. Well, everybody could hear this beating and, uh, and, they, and this droning and they're wondering where it's coming from. That's in some ways the most explicit expression of that extraordinary beat, which I think is everywhere in the writing as well. Uh, and that leads me to a second point and that's about repetition. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that if you're dealing with a musical writing, mm. it's not just the beat, it's the repetition, mm -hmm. which is really important. Do you want to talk about repetition in the novel? Yes and no. There is that rhythm that's going on all the time and, and that you're wanting to push the point in what's happening there in you know, particular chapters, paragraphs, sentences. Yes. <laughs> and it needs that, I think, that repetition because... You want people to, and you want yourself to know and to keep following the story because they play that important role to keep the story going and flowing. I, I noticed it very strongly. It's repetition and variation mm. because often I was sort of poised with my editorial pen. Mm. But there's always something new. Mm. But that's so. what music is like too. You know, Some of the type of music that I listen to, it seems repetitious and that, it, that it's moving and then it changes, and sometimes you're not even conscious that it's starting to change and it's flowing mm. somewhere else, mm. Mm. like a river. <laughs> I mean, there's mm. another aspect to repetition, and that's obsession. Mm. Mm. And certainly Planet, who's in a way in the mould of a normal phantom in um, Carpenteria with his 
imaginative uh, mm. preoccupations, especially with fish, mm. but also in the mould of Tracker, who also had his obsessions, didn't he? There's a, people have made that comment. I guess, you know, you know subconsciously that uh, I was doing two books at the same time, one was Tracker, that <laughs> <laughs> some fed into the other. But uh, it was never intentionally. And no. I, I, I don't see the planet character as someone like Tracker. Tracker was one of a kind. You know, there was no one else like Tracker. No, you're not imagined, you know, not a, not a fictional person, a force of his own, Tracker. I felt it very strongly in the portrait of uh, Planet, mm. who's also called Widespread, because his visions are so, so large, mm. that the repetition of his insistence on donkeys really came, was a kind of um, powerful expression because you're constantly mm. being denied in your aspirations. And that's where I think the, the sense of obsession, the perpetual denial or the constant placing of difficulties mm. in the way of achieving anything is actually causing a kind of madness. The case in his portrait. Do you think it? I'm mad? No, not you. <laughs> well, you're writing. I mean, you're achieving. But, but that constant mm. returning to the beginning, yeah. is, is that how you felt it there? Yeah. Well, the, the character of widespread, he grew and... Uh, you know, he, he believes he can save the world with donkeys. You know, he's with a magnificent, you know, conglomerate, a transport conglomerate, you know, that it was going to save the world when we run out of fossil fuel, and uh, which is not going to happen. Uh, we've got five million donkeys hanging around. They're all free. And instead of killing them, he's decided, you know, he's going to get in before everybody else wants these feral donkeys to get around on when they've got no petrol for the motor car. And... Uh, He's going to save his people, ride the burning planet and um, get them through the other side. And he believes that. But he's not the only one. It takes people who want to do something and, and do something on large scale or have a big vision. They get obsessed about it. They really believe it. He believes that. He's on an odyssey of, of finding the perfect grey donkey to lead this transport conglomeration. You know, like how you see a, a bulldog on the front of a Max truck he has to have this perfect, most powerful, magical donkey that's going to lead the way of this great transport industry. Well, we might be riding on it one day, Ivor. Well, you <laughs> offer us a glimpse of its reality at the end of the book. <laughs> Everybody in Praiseworthy is, you know, being, having their houses removed by donkeys and they're going to visit friends and relatives with donkey trains and things like that. For a brief moment, it, it seems entirely real. Um, and it's logical. It's not illogical. I mean, no. if you've got all these feral animals and no one's doing anything with them, it makes sense to make use of them. Mm. <laughs> but so I, I try to write... That's, that's the realistic thing in the novel, to try to make it realistic <laughs> that it could happen. Make things happen. But mm. the frustration and the sense of anxiety, especially mm. when he goes out once again, yet again out, you know, into the back country to look for donkeys and he's got this really obstreperous donkey in the back seat, you know, mm. who doesn't really want to be part of this total vision. No, uh, and, no. Uh, and sort of language. You can't be convinced. <laughs> <laughs> totally mad. But you do, it's high anxiety. Uh, mm. And one of the things I, I found interesting is that when you're portraying anxiety, you get inside the brain and the brain becomes a house uh, mm. with furniture and with things locked away in various cupboards or in a safe and they're all kind of coming out at you. And that's particularly the case with dreams as well. 
It reminded me of the beginning of the Swan Book, you know, where mm. there's a virus inside the brain mm. and it's throwing projectiles out the windows. Mm. Where did you get this kind of imaginative? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, not just, it's not just the landscape, you know, mm. uh, um, of Praiseworthy that's mm. a landscape. It's the mind as well that mm. you portray as a landscape. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's the power of the imagination is a great thing, and if you work at it hard enough, and that's probably what I've been trying to do over a, a long period of time, is is build the, the scope of imagination and keep building it and expanding on it. And I mean, I understand that this is a political point for you. It's not a romantic notion of the expansiveness of the imagination. Mm. I mean, you're insisting on the sovereignty of the imagination in the face of its denial, the denial of sovereignty in political terms. Mm. It's as if, well, we can't get it that way, but we do have yeah. sovereignty over, over our yeah, own that's right. We, we've got a sovereignty over our own mind and our own imagination. If we've got nothing else, we've got that. But that's what you play with, yes. what's what you build on, and you build on it as much as you possibly can. You know, that's what people do, that's what Tracker tried to do. Not let anybody else put him in a pen and say, this is what you've got to do, this is how you've got to write. I'm not in for that. No, I don't know many contemporary writers who take it as their project to expand the limits of the imagination. That seems to me a very brave thing to do. It's, it's not brave, it's... Um, it's really what you have to do. I think every writer should be doing that. <laughs> you know, we're moving into, you know, some hard times ahead, so, you know, we, we better start thinking about how to imagine our way in it and way out of it. And, and not to be frightened, fearful about doing things like that, to, to imagine and, and to imagine in a really big way and, uh, and to keep on building that. It's the only way. To me, it's the only way. It's looking at the big, big ideas, the big picture, and working it on scale, I think. That's really important. I, I think it's a fact of your novels that the characters that have the big visions are also the characters that have a lot of enemies. And to think big is to attract jealousy and people who dispute, you know, your territorial rights because they feel you're impinging on them. And that's mm. certainly the case in Praiseworthy, mm. where not only Planet but Dance, his uh, wife, also the subject of great animosity to the point where Dance is actually more or less driven out of the community. I think your portrayal of uh, discord within the Aboriginal community is really brave too. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the difficulties that come from within as well as without? Well, uh, I think the difficulties that come from within is a, a legacy of what's happened in the last two centuries. And of course, people are struggling, you know, and there's big struggles going on. So there's going to be just discord. Well, I, you know, I don't want to go into it all that much, but we've got a legacy of things that have happened to the Aboriginal world from day one. And we're still struggling with that. And, and everything that seems to come out of that seems to be the wrong thing, the wrong thing happening, you know, like the intervention, for instance. You know, so much money was put into that, billions, you know, I, I mentioned, to fix the Aboriginal world. And then you had people on the ground, you know, who, who had bigger ideas about themselves. So we govern ourselves. And, uh, and uh, we have our own constitutions. But who heard? Who heard them say that? Nobody. 
and then the next bit she got the intervention. And if that, all that money had been put into what people on the ground wanted or wanted to try and build in relationship with a, you know, a good, caring, decent government, Australian government, we could have been so much further ahead instead of going backwards, backwards, backwards. These are the realities. You have to put those realities in your work. I mean, there's one aspect of the intervention that really does loom large over the book, and that is the accusation that Aboriginal parents don't love their children, an accusation made against refugees as well in the case of Civex, you know, they mm. threw them overboard. Seems to be an accusation we're rather good at. <laughs> I don't know where we got it from. This question of abusive children um, is very strong and is focused very much on Aboriginal sovereignty, the older son Mm. of uh, dance and planet. That was also a brave thing to tackle head on, I think. Again, reality. <laughs> there are issues and there are also a lot of issues in the non-Indigenous world too, but and not the scale and not the thrill of, of what, what happened there at that time of the intervention and when it was rolled out. And then you have children who are born into that. You know, we see some of that played out now in, in towns in the in Northern Territory, children of the intervention. But the character Aboriginal Sovereignty was, well, his father called him Aboriginal Sovereignty because they're the only two words he liked to, to say or hear, <laughs> Aboriginal Sovereignty. <laughs> and, uh, and Tommy Hawk, you know, he determined that on, on site, you know, when, when Tomahawk was born, that Tomahawk was going to be a fascist. Tomahawk was, to me, a child that was very impressionable and picking up all the commentary going on all around the country saying that Aboriginal parents don't love their children, Aboriginal men are all pedophiles and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Books are a little bit about ambition and desire. And uh, so what his ambition is to use all that and, uh, you know, to say that, yes, you know, I'm frightened of my parents because they might be pedophiles or my father's a pedophile, my big brother's a pedophile and uh, everyone's a pedophile here and uh, all that type of thing. And his ambition is to leave praiseworthy, this place, uh, you know, with the haze and permanent haze over it and to be adopted by a lady who is the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and um, he sees her as the mother and uh, a lot of people see her as the mother of our all Aboriginal children. So he feels, well, he wants to go and live with her. He wants her to be his mother. And he has visions of her hovering in the sky on her office chair, swiveling around, golden-haired angel. And he wants to live with her in Parliament House in Canberra. He definitely wants to go there. And that's all he prays for, for her. And he tries to contact her and he wants her to come and, you know, send... Qantas or an army jet or something to come and take him away to camera so he can be a rich child and uh, living in this rich place, big white place in Parliament House in Canberra. He doesn't just renounce yes. his parents, he renounces his Aboriginality. In fact, he wants to be white. Yeah. And he's one of a number of characters who want to be white, mm. the most notable of which is uh, Major Mayor Icepick who's an albino <laughs> Aboriginal, mm. and uh, he's got other names, Casper, 
because of his white mm. desire to be whiteness, um, and Lolly because of his pink complexion. I've got it here. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to ask you about allegory and mm. you know the fact that part of the expansion, expansive nature of the novel is that the characters are never simply not characters; they're also larger uh, concepts. They stand for larger concepts like Aboriginal sovereignty, planet. And there's quite a lot of play on uh, names in the, in the book of mm. that kind. Is that conscious on your part to build the characters so that they represent something larger? It's not conscious, I, I don't think. Like it's, dance, for example. Yeah. It's obviously... Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I, I don't know where, where these, the names of these characters come from. I don't take a lot of notes. Um, not like come. some writers that you've told me about, you know, have notes and folders and stickers for everything. My notes are a bit scratchy. and I don't know where these names come from. Yeah. We've been very serious in our conversation, but, of course, one of the strongest aspects of the book is comedy mm. in the face of disaster, obviously, but comedy nevertheless. Mm. And uh, there's that wonderful uh, cast of ice queens who are um, the maidens um, of Ice Pick, you know, who do his work for him. Mm. Uh, Maudlin, Abel Mabel, Heavy Titania, the Cat Queen, mm. Meadow Lee, that's a nice one, <laughs> and the Rivers of Booze, Queen mm. of the Outback. And mm. they're like a chorus, an operatic chorus, aren't they? And mm. they carry on, they're dressed outrageously and they're racist in their own desire to be white and their cruelty as well. So that seems to me an aspect of the operatic nature of the book, that sort of building to crescendos. Mm. Well, I sort of had fun when I was writing that and playing imagination again. And I, and I think the whole book, apart from the issues in there and, and so forth, had a lot of joy in writing it, in the fact, you know, that I could write it. I come a long way in my life and uh, in, in terms of being a writer or in terms of even thinking I could even write at all. And it's, it's like your instrument, like a musician, for instance, who has practised a lot and you get to such a level playing that instrument and it's beautiful and you can have, find the joy in doing it or, a, you know, an elite sports person or a footballer or a tennis player or ballet dancer, or anybody. When you work at something so, so much and so hard and you think so much about it, and when you finally can feel it, you can do it, there's a sort of joy and a release, and you can relax into it. And that's where the music of it happens, and that <laughs> the song, it's like a song. That makes a lot of sense. That the, mm. The, mm. What the novel is expressing is your own joy in, in, in the writing, in the ability to write mm. on that scale especially. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that was captured in the cover of the book. I think Jenny Grigg did a very good job there yes. of capturing that mm. sort of... <laughs> yeah, the flight of butterflies. ...outburst of energy, which... Mm. Uh, mm. I think we have to stop now. But is there anything you'd like to add before we do... No. That we haven't covered yet. <laughs> no, unless I start asking you some questions. <laughs> no, no, that's easy. <laughs> Signed copies of Praiseworthy are available via all reading stores and from our website, where you can also stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also send it to e-news, 
or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past and present. Thank you.